Today we want to look at a very important question. What hope is there for real justice? What hope is there for real justice? You've probably heard the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I won't ask if you've heard that. It's quite a common phrase. Let me just twist that a little bit, because here's another one for you. Injustice is in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) Injustice is in the eye of the beholder, right? One man's injustice might, their view of injustice might be different from your view of injustice. At least that is how it is regarded in our world these days. The belief that everybody has a right to believe whatever they want to believe has been subtly, subtly replaced with the idea that everybody is right. Moral relativism, it's called. And in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, doing justice becomes more difficult, if not impossible. After all, how can we say that anything is wrong? How can you tell your workmate that their view is wrong? Or your family member who thinks that it's all right for abortion, how can you tell them that that's wrong? Yes, some things still seem innately wrong to us. Consider the news stories maybe you've read or maybe some of the news stories you've seen on TV over the last couple weeks. I imagine there's maybe at least one story you've heard over the last couple of weeks in which you, maybe you just found yourself feeling deep down inside that is wrong. And if you, I'm sure maybe, there's, maybe all of us have felt that way. Maybe, maybe you're feeling it, it, it just shouldn't be this way. Why do you feel that way? I believe a lot of it comes from the fact the Bible says that the law of God is written on our hearts. And because of that, it causes us to see things as evil. Those of us who are Christian and and see the law of God written in our hearts, we we kind of look at things differently from unsaved people, don't we? We see things that are evil and things that are good. So what hope is there for real justice in a world of moral relativism, of injustice? That's a good question to ask. What hope is there for justice in a world of murders, in a world of robberies and burnings and bombings, as well as the unseen cruelties that aren't necessarily seen as crimes, at least not in human courts? Is justice something that is attainable? Is justice something that's realistic? Well, in this study that we're going to see today in the big picture of Jeremiah, we're going to consider the picture of God's justice found in this wonderful book. Jeremiah, let me just say this, that Jeremiah is basically God's message to his people of coming justice. It's God's message to his people of coming justice. So if you're not there, you can turn to Jeremiah. We'll get there eventually. But... The very first part of Jeremiah, in fact, most of the book of Jeremiah is, about, is primarily about God's justice for his people. It's about God's justice for his people. And in fact, that's what Jeremiah 1 through 45 and as well as verse, or chapter 52 is predominantly about. And I've given you a chronological chart here of, uh, you can see Isaiah's ministry there in the, in the dark part on this, um, on, up here on the screen. You can see when, when Isaiah's ministry came in the midst of the various 
various kings, uh, as well as what was going on in other parts of the world there. So let me just give you a little historical background here that, that will be helpful in understanding the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived about 100 years after the prophet Isaiah. And during Isaiah's ministry, if you, I might need to remind you about this, that the northern kingdom of Israel had, fell, had fallen to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The Assyrians continued to harass the southern kingdom of Judah, and they even came down as far as the city of Jerusalem. And we saw that, remember last week, Isaiah chapter 36 through 39. Remember the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. They put a siege on the city of Jerusalem. And if it wasn't for God sending his death angel to wipe out 185,000 of the Assyrian troops, well, the city of Jerusalem would have fallen as many other cities did. And so Assyria gradually ends up declining in power until ultimately is destroyed by the Babylonians in 612 B.C. And in the midst of Assyria's decline, Judah takes advantage of Assyria's decline because they were actually paying tribute to the Assyrians. And as they saw them uh, declining in their power, they, they realized, the kings of, of Judah realized, hey, you know, we don't really need to give them any more of our tax money because what, what can they do about it? And that's what they did. So they, they stopped paying the money. And so they used that situation to build up their strength. Sadly, Babylon would quickly prove to be an even greater foe than the Assyrians. Many in Judah ended up trusting in the wrong things. Again, they, they looked to Egypt for protection from Babylon. But Egypt suffered a, a massive defeat to the Babylonians. And in fact, that's when... Uh, it was, it was even when uh, uh, King Josiah, if you remember, ends up dying in battle. And Babylon would eventually sack Jerusalem itself. And it was during these turbulent times that God brought Jeremiah on the scene. God often brings his prophets on the scene during very turbulent, uh, troubled times. And Jeremiah is one of these men. So in many ways, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you might be a bit discouraged because the first 45 of the book's 52 chapters read like really one long suit for divorce. It, it's depressing in some ways. In these chapters, we see God angry with his people. He's, he's not happy with them. He promises, in, in fact, in chapter 25, listen, here's what he says. I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name course he's talking about jerusalem do you see the tragedy here in, in that one verse god is deciding to bring justice on the very people who bear his name god would take that seriously because god if you know anything about the bible god loves his name he cares about his name his honor is wrapped up in his name and so for him to destroy the very people who bear his name, well, this is serious business here. And so we have to ask a couple questions as we look at God's judgment on his people. We have to ask, well, the first question that should come to our minds is, what were the causes of this judgment? What were the causes for this judgment? 
What were the charges against God's people? Try to think of this as a list of accusations, God bringing his people into his court, if you will. He has a list of accusations, and, and God, it's as if he has a book, and he lays out this book before them, this, these charges and these accusations. And the first cause of judgment is, first of all, that they forsook God. They forsook God. Look at Jeremiah 1, verse 16. Jeremiah 1, verse 16, here's what the Bible says. These are the words of the living God. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness. Because, look what it says, they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. God's people, you can see here, have broken God's covenant. God made a covenant with his people. If they obeyed and kept the covenant, God would bless them. If they disobeyed, they disobeyed Deuteronomy says God would curse them. And we can see this, this curse coming out as a result of their disobedience. They have forsaken God by doing what? What does it say? By worshiping idols. Not just any idol, because it says they have worshipped what their hands have made. <laughs> Think about that, because what a ridiculous thing to do. They're worshipping the very thing that they have created. All right, if you're not getting the point, let me, let me think about, let's think about it this way, okay? Have you ever prepared dinner? Okay, you put all the ingredients together in, in a casserole, say, for example. You put the casserole in the oven, the, 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 the buzzer goes off, take the casserole out of the oven, you immediately fall to your knees and you start worshiping the casserole. You say, man, that's a ridiculous... Most people would say, no, I've never done that, that's, that's stupid. Yes, it's stupid to worship something your own hands have created. But that's exactly what's going on here. This is exactly the charge that the all-knowing God is bringing against his own people. Now, before you start feeling too self-righteous at this point, in case you've missed the illustration and say, hey, I've never worshipped my own casserole, uh, we need to take heed. Take heed, my friend, because not all idolatry is as silly as praying to food. The reality is, there is probably something in your life, as there is in my own life, uh, that has, has drawn my heart away from God to something that either myself or someone else has created. I don't think I need to name, start naming things, do I? I hope you get the point. Because there's a lot of things around us that either you or somebody else has created, and we find our hearts being drawn to that thing. And if that's the case, then you're worshiping an idol. In chapter 2, the Lord breaks the accusation that we see here in chapter 1. He breaks it down into two specific charges. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what God says, for my people have committed two evils, two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and here's the second one, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the first accusation is the one we've already talked about. Number one, they have forsaken God. 
They forsook God. And number two, the second cause of judgment is they turned to idolatrous objects of trust. They turned to idolatrous trust or um, objects of trust. Now here's what the ESV study Bible says in regards to this verse. Listen or, or look here on the screen. Quote, Palestine has three sources of water. The best is fresh running water, such as flows from a spring or stream, which is called living water. Next comes groundwater, such as might collect in a well. And last is runoff water collected in a cistern, which is a pit hewn in the limestone and plastered to prevent seepage. It also collects silt and mosquito larvae. Thus, in Jeremiah's image, not only have the Israelites traded the best of water supplies for the worst, but their cistern is broken, with all its water leaked out and nothing but sludge remaining. Their covenant infidelity is not just ungrateful and unnatural, it is also foolish. It leaves them without help in the coming difficult days. End quote. I don't know about you, but I I find these kind of verses in the Bible a rebuke. I find them a a moral compass, if you will, uh, to help keep me on track and to show me just how far from God I I have gone. We do this, don't we? We're, we've broken our covenant, we've been infidels against God. Not only are we ungrateful, this is something that's totally unnatural. It's foolish. We have forsaken Jesus Christ, who is the living water oftentimes, and we go and drink sludge. (laughs) We do this, sadly. But praise God, we serve a God who is faithful and just and willing to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in chapter 3, we see God, God's accusation continues. It continues as if that's not bad enough. Look what God says in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Put your eyeballs on, on the words of Scripture here, please. Chapter 3, verse 1. They say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? By the way, in case you don't know what's going on here, God's using this illustration of the husband and wife relationship, fidelity in the covenant of a marriage bond to illustrate the spiritual adultery with his people. Okay, that's what's going on here. Okay? So let's continue on. Verse 1, it says, May he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see, where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers that have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain, you have had a harlot's forehead you refuse to be ashamed will you not from this time cry to me my father you are the guide of my youth will he remain angry forever will he keep it to the end behold you have spoken and done evil things as you were able 
Let's stop there. Well, we could keep going because you, if you continue reading on into all the way from chapter 3 into chapter 45, the book of Jeremiah just goes on and on and on. We could keep reading, but I don't, we don't need to belabor the point, I hope, because God is clear with his people here. It, is even, even, it even says here they become bold in their sin. They're not just doing this in the closet. They're doing this, this sin against their God in the open. They, they don't even have shame. They're not even blushing about their sin. Then the whole nation had sinned against God. Even their religious devotion was wrong. They were devoted, but even their religious devotion was wrong. And in chapter 7, turn there please, chapter 7, God mockingly repeats the people's claims to feel safe because the temple of Yahweh is in their presence. <laughs> they had this idea, this idea that because the temple of Yahweh, the Lord's temple, was in their presence, well, hey, I'm safe. God's not going to judge me because of that. Surely nothing could happen to them in the temple, right? If I walk into God's temple, God's not going to, you know, he's not going to strike me dead with thunder or lightning or, or something like that, is he? And here they are thinking this way, and all the while the Babylonians are getting closer. The Babylonians are getting closer. The Babylonians are getting stronger. And eventually they take Jerusalem. But before that happens, look what, look what uh, their way of thinking here in chapter 7, verse 9 Chapter 7, verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. We'll stop there. As you can see, it gets even worse. It gets even worse. They had the audacity to, to play the harlot, so to speak, out there in, you know, when they're outside the temple. But they come in God's temple and, pre and pretend and play church. They put on the mask of church and pretend that everything's okay between them and their God. It's just like a husband committing adultery against his wife, committing and breaking the marriage bond, and then come into the house and act like everything's okay, like they haven't committed adultery. That's exactly what God's people have done. And as if that's bad enough, it gets even worse, because they were burning their sons and their daughters in the fire in worship of Molech. I've given you a picture here of uh, what Molech may have looked like. Sadly, they would, they would build these fires in the belly of Molech, and the very hands of Molech would turn red hot, and they would come and lay their children, their babies, in the hands of Molech and listen to their children scream as their children would be consumed in the fires as they worship Molech. They were offering up human sacrifices of their own family members in their false religion. We can see that in chapter 7, verse 31. Chapter 7, verse 
31, it says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. They had reached a terrible stalemate in which God did not care about their hollow religious worship. He's not impressed when we, when we honor Him with our lips, as the Bible says, but our hearts are far from Him. That's what's going on here. Why? Why is that? Because they entered the house of Yahweh and they would sometimes do the right thing, but God knew everything else they were doing because God knows everything, doesn't He? God's everywhere. He is all-knowing. He sees all things. He knows even what we're thinking. You can't fool him. God knew everything they were doing. In fact, God knew everything they did not care about his word, it says. They didn't even care about his word. And that's the third cause of judgment. They rejected God's word. They rejected God's word. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19. Which says, Hear, O earth, Behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts. Why? What did God say? Because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. Do you see that in verse 20? I mean, they're, they're doing these things that are supposedly things that, that are acceptable to God. They're burning incense. It wasn't acceptable to God. God's word had become offensive to them, which chapter 6, verse 10 says. Chapter 6, verse 10 says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. What happens when God's word becomes offensive to God's people? Well, they end up doing what chapter 5 talks about. Look at chapter 5. They choose teachers and prophets who will teach them something that's different from God's word. Look at chapter 5, verse 30. Chapter 5, verse 30. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? What a sad indictment upon God's people. They love it this way. They love it this way. They didn't do anything about this problem. They accepted the problem and they loved to have their ears tickled and itched. Sound familiar to another passage in the New Testament? I'm sure it does because it may sound like many religious people today. Apostle Paul warned about this, that this day would come and we're in this day. God warned us in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here it's on the screen. Here's what the Apostle Paul told Timothy. He said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. My friends, we're in this age. (laughs) We live in this age. People don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. And as Ingram and Joe and myself and my kids, even this past Thursday, we went out to hand out Bibles to people. Some people even see the Bibles in the bag and they're like, nope, not interested. Not interested. Don't even talk to me. Uh, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I can see what's in your bag. I'm not interested. Or you walk up and say, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'd like to give you something. Would you like a Bible? No, no thanks. We have our religion. I'm not trying to give you religion. (laughs) I want to give you God's word. Oh, that's okay. No, thank you. And then there's others. There was a classic example. This guy, this past Thursday, I walk up to this guy and he says, "Uh, my wife already has one, so no thank you. Uh, but I'm talking to you. Do you have one? No, thank you. Not interested. Don't even want God's word. That's the age we live in. But having said that, praise God, because over the last couple weeks, I think we've now given out 83 Bibles. There are now 83 people out there who have God's word, at least a portion of God's word in their hand. We need to pray that they'll read it. So again, we ask the question, where is the justice in this? Should God not avenge himself on a nation like Israel? Should he not avenge himself on a nation who have broken the covenant? They've sinned against him. They've they've committed spiritual adultery. And the answer is yes, he should. And we see that here in the book of Jeremiah. The second question we need to ask is, is is there a promise of judgment? Is there a promise of judgment? God sent Jeremiah to bear the message of coming judgment, even against those people who were bearing his own name. Indeed, the promise of justice was especially against God's people because they were bearing his name. They were to be the light of the world. They were to bring that light of of the world to the world around them, and they didn't bear that light. How exactly would God judge his people? Primarily, God would answer his people's disobedience by destroying the nation with a foreign army. Believe it or not, he would use another heathen nation to destroy his people. (laughs) Seems ironic, doesn't it? The Lord symbolizes this destruction in the book of Jeremiah with a rather interesting illustration. God would often call his prophets to do very strange things as visual pictures before his people to see what he wanted them to know. And in this case, the Lord symbolized this destruction with a clay pot. A clay pot. And he instructed Jeremiah to purchase that clay pot, and then he wanted to go before his people, take the clay pot, and smash the clay pot right in front of a crowd. And then he told Jeremiah to say these words. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed. God has interesting ways, doesn't he? 
I hope they got the message. Sadly, they didn't, though. In the final chapter of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 52, you can read these words. It says, So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Did they repent of their sin? No, they didn't. Sadly, they did not repent of their sin. And so they were taken into exile out of their land. That's what the last chapter says. Why? Why did that happen? Why did God use a nation like Babylon, who was not any better than God's people, (laughs) to bring judgment upon his people? It's because they prostituted themselves to other gods. They should have known better. But they brought disgrace to God's name. These were the people who bore his name. But they brought disgrace to Yahweh. Surely you understand God's concern for his own name. I, I hope you do anyway. At least those of us who are parents, those of us who are parents, ought to have an understanding of what it means for our children to bear our name and what comes with the bearing of that name. What parent is there who doesn't know the pride or the shame that a child bearing the parent's own name can bring on both of their heads? So do you think God would feel any different? Do you think God would feel any different when his own children shame him by not reflecting his character properly? No, he loves them faithfully. Yes, he made them. But now it it, it may seem like a very strange love in some respects for God to judge his people who bear his name. But what kind of love is it that never corrects? Let me ask you, those of you who are parents, <laughs> what kind of love is it for you to never correct your child when they're doing something dangerous, for example? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know there's a cliff there, you know, and, and you, you fall off this cliff, you're going to die, but you, you, that's fine, child, you just go and play by the cliff. No problem. Any parent in the right mind is going to correct their child who is in a dangerous situation like that, right? That's normal. When we think of judgment, we often think of what God does toward those who are not his people, toward these so-called bad people. (laughs) Well, my friend, I have news for you. If you are not one of the so-called bad people, you have no need for this or any other sermon. Neither do you have a need for a church. You say, why? Why? Because the church is specially for the bad people. And I'm one of them. Church is for the bad people. Sermons are for bad people. And I'm one of them. Some people like to present God as a God of love. And surely God, He is love. But He is far more than just love. God has revealed Himself as a personal God who is also holy. He is distinct. He is unique from his creation, but he's also God who loves. What's the point? What is the point? Here's the point. We cannot demand that a holy and loving God be uncritical of his people. In his love, he's not going to leave us broken, fallen people. That's the way he found us. God found us dead broken, fallen, wounded people. 
But a loving God doesn't leave us in that state. He loves us. He makes us better than He finds us. And in fact, He will ultimately make us perfect just like Jesus Christ. I hope you understand that it is loving to correct. It is loving to discipline. And in case you don't believe what I've just told you, maybe you'll believe what Hebrews 12 verse 6 says. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 12 6, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. So when He disciplines you, my friend, take it as a wonderful sign of His grace in your life that He loves you. Because He does. What is the priority of God's judgment? God judges. We see the promises here that He will judge those who rebel against Him. But what is the priority? Well, let's just think about this this story in Jeremiah for a moment, okay? Suppose for a moment that the story ends here. The story ends with his people being taken off into exile. (laughs) Suppose that God used Babylon to chastise his people in love, and then the story stops there. What would be wrong with that picture? The question that Jeremiah is, is thinking is, what about Babylon? Jeremiah's thinking, well, God, what about Babylon? Are are they any better than us? (laughs) Would Babylon escape God's judgment? If you stop reading at chapter 45, you might think that's the case, but praise God, the book of Jeremiah doesn't end at chapter 45. Look what Jeremiah says in chapter 12. Chapter 12, maybe you felt this way about the wicked people around you who seem to prosper in life. Look what Jeremiah says in chapter 12, verse 1. Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you, yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Sounds like Psalm 37, doesn't it? Why do the, prosper, the wicked seem to prosper? I mean, people like Babylon. Why do they seem to prosper? And then those of us, your people, we don't. It's a good question to ask. does not seem fair for the wicked to prosper, does it? The question is this, though. Will they always prosper? The answer, according to Psalm 37, is no. No, the answer is no. Not, they're not going to prosper forever. And in fact, we see God bringing up the promise of judgment upon even Babylon itself in the book of Jeremiah. God will ultimately bring judgment on all wicked people. Nobody will escape his judgment. And we're going to get to this point in just a moment. But let me just think about the priority of judgment here for a moment. Because what is our tendency? Our tendency is to kind of rush ahead and, and we want to hear God make the point of judgment against the heathen out there. That's our tendency. God wants to make sure that his people understand the priority of judgment that he is placing upon them, upon us. And if you're a Christian, you need to understand what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 17. It says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's where judgment begins. And then it goes on to say, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
That's where the priority of judgment begins. We need to point the fingers at ourselves. We need to pray to ask God to reveal our own sin to us first. Judgment begins with the household of God, with those of us who are Christians. Very easy for us to look out there and and to point fingers around us. It's very easy to find someone who is more wicked, so to speak, than you are. But that's not where God wants us to look first. He wants us to look at our sin, to see how far we have fallen short of his glory well the book of jeremiah doesn't end there as i said it does finally get to justice for babylon and the nations that's where the the last part of the book of jeremiah focuses in on justice for babylon and the nations that's chapters 46 through 51 and in these chapters it's kind of like as if god says to jeremiah now Don't think I've forgotten the rest of the world, Jeremiah. (laughs) Jeremiah, I haven't forgotten Babylon and the rest of the world. My eyes are open to what's going on. And if you start in chapter 46 and you kind of just glance through the chapter headings, you do that sometime, if you look at those chapter headings, you're going to see that Jeremiah begins with the promise of judgment upon Egypt, and then he, he speaks out upon judgment upon, upon nation, upon nation, upon nation. He goes through a whole list of various nations there. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details of those various nations. But it's, it's interesting to note that he takes who God takes the most space with. In chapters 50 to 51, he's making this final declaration of impending judgment. Who is the recipient of this promised condemnation? Babylon. Babylon is the, seems to be the primary emphasis in those chapters, 50 and 51. In these two chapters, God clearly makes the point here that the Babylonians, they're, they're just a tool. They're only a tool in God's hand to accomplish his purpose of judgment upon his people. The nation that looked so majestic and powerful turns out to be a pawn in God's plan to humble his people. Up to this point, Babylon just keeps winning battle after battle. They're winning battle after battle. It seems they're unstoppable. They're powerful. They're huge. Who can stop them? But now God promises Babylon that it's going to go the way of the last empire before them. Look at chapter 50. Chapter 50, I want you to see that Babylon's just a pawn. They're just a tool in God's hand. They are accomplishing His purposes. Look at Chapter 50, verse 18. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. They're just a pawn. They're just a tool in God's hand. Question for you. Why did God bring justice against his people? In case you've missed the point, the answer is in order to discipline them. Remember, God disciplines those whom He loves. He loves His people. He made a covenant with His people. He disciplined them, and then God brought justice against the very nation that He used to discipline them, which, of course, was Babylon. Question. If everyone receives justice, what then is the difference between God's people and other people? What's the difference between us and other people? 
The answer is, the difference is mercy. There's a precious word we find in the book of Jeremiah. It is the word mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. My friend, do you know what you deserve? Every one of us deserves to go to hell. We deserve to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Because we have fallen short of God's glory and His standard of perfection, which of course is Himself, we are all sinners. We deserve to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And if that happened to us, that would be fair. That would be justice. But praise God, there is more than just justice in this book. There is mercy. The book of Jeremiah is not entirely a book of just gloomy, dark clouds of judgment. No, if you're looking for a little sunshine, and I'm sure in a couple days we will be looking for a little sunshine after it's been raining, as it has the last few days. We love sunshine, don't we? It kind of cheers us up. Well, if you're looking for sunshine in the book of Jeremiah, read chapters 30 through 33. I will love it because it kind of comes right in the middle there. It gives you a little bit of sunshine in the midst of the dark clouds of gloom. You've got these bright rays shining down. God promises that He will once again gather His scattered people and He's going to make a new covenant. And in fact, I'm sure many of you are familiar with these wonderful words in chapter 31. Chapter 31, we have mention of a new covenant. A new covenant. Look at chapter 31, verse 31. Chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the land, that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Let's stop there. God promises judgment. Praise God. That's one of the things I love about God and His Word. God often gives bad news, but He often gives good news. When He gives bad news, He gives good news. When God promises judgment, He also promises hope. He promises hope. Look at chapter 29. In chapter 29, Jeremiah writes a letter, a very encouraging letter, to the exiles who were taken off to Babylon. He writes this very encouraging letter to the exiles in Babylon. Uh, I love these words. These are encouraging, wonderful words. Look at Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, 
thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. God promises judgment, and God also gives hope. In the book of Lamentations, which I'm assuming was written by the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah utters this wonderful lament as he sees his beloved city of Jerusalem being besieged by the Babylonians. Here's what he says, Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jeremiah put his hope in God's mercy and compassion. Do you see that, my friend? Jeremiah lived in tumultuous times, in distressing times, in times when he was seeing his people being killed, taken off into exile, and his very beloved city of Jerusalem sacked and the temple destroyed. Where did his hope lie? Jeremiah put his hope in God's mercy and compassion. My only hope for mercy is in God. Where does your hope lie? Let's pray.